weekly after the notices, there's always a bit of a kind of graveyard slot. Everybody's lost the will to live with all the notices and switched off, but hopefully you've retained all those and, and you haven't gone to sleep as well, so that, that would be good. Uh, on your chair, there should be an outline, so if you want to use that, if you find that helpful, it's there. All the uh, things will be up on the screen as well, but the, the outline's there, and there should be pens in the seats in front of you if you want to make use of that. It was great on Wednesday for a number of us to be able to go through to Daryl and Kezia's wedding. They got married. Uh, Daryl and Kezia, if you're watching on Zoom on your honeymoon, then that's great. And if you are, then uh, we'll see you next Sunday. Uh, probably they've not, but anyway, if you, just in case you are, then um, bless you guys. It, it was great to be through there in Durham witnessing uh, the wedding. It was a great service, and uh, yeah, just really great to see them uh, actually getting married. Here's some pictures for you. The first one is of the uh, lovely couple kissing. Uh, I managed to get out of the way just in time there, as you can see, for them to be able to kiss each other. And we've got a lovely uh, picture of the bride and groom and their uh, parents. That was at the reception afterwards. Uh, beautiful picture there. And then we've got a lovely picture of some of the guests at the reception. They got dragged in from somewhere, I'm not quite sure where. Now, probably about three quarters of the guests who were at the wedding uh, weren't actually Christians, and Daryl and Kezia had uh, made a real kind of point of saying they were really keen to uh, make sure that Jesus was right at the center of their marriage and of their wedding ceremony, so that their non-Christian friends and family, of which probably most of the people who were there uh, were in that category, could hear about Jesus and, and, and see that. And at the reception afterwards, Claire and I got talking with a number of their friends and family, and the one thing they said over and over again about Daryl was that they'd really seen the, the, the real change in Daryl's life over the last six months since Daryl became a Christian. And Daryl's an accountant, and one of the guys who he advises was there at reception. I got talking to him, and he said, oh, yeah, he said, it's a pain. He said, uh, Daryl's forced me to go VAT registered and to put all my business honestly now. He said, I didn't used to do that, and he's, no, because he's into that, all that God stuff, he's made me do this, and so well, that's great. That's a really great example of, of Daryl being a godly influence. And then his brother, who was best man, he just about managed to get away without the best man speech being too horrendous. But that was because, in fact, the best man came up to me afterwards and said, I hope it wasn't too offensive for the Christians. I hope that was okay. And I said, yeah, I just, 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 that was okay. And Daryl had, had sat him down beforehand and said, right, these are all the things you can't say. These are the words you can't use. And these are the stories you can't tell. And his brother had taken that on board. And that was because of Daryl. Um, just kind of being a godly influence. And so apart from being a fantastic wedding where two fantastic people who love Jesus got married, it was an amazing example of one man doing his best to follow Jesus day by day and being a godly influence on the people around him. It really was. Daryl's going to be getting baptized soon, and, and I'm sure he'll share his story uh, with you then. But his life has really changed since he trusted in Jesus. If you knew Daryl a few years ago, and if you knew Daryl now, you'd, you'd see that. And it's fantastic to see that other people are now being influenced by Daryl since he uh, gave his life to Jesus. And, and let's pray as a church that all of Daryl's friends and family and all those that were at the wedding uh, will come to know the Lord Jesus uh, in, the, in the months and years ahead. That would be great, wouldn't it? And Kezia's friends and family too, through their godly influence. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Titus in the New Testament, which was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. And Titus was looking after uh, the churches that Paul and his team had started, had planted there in Crete. And over the last few weeks in particular, we've been looking at the first eight verses of chapter two of Titus under the theme of how to be a godly influence. 
And today is the third part of this theme as we look at verses 6 to 8. And the focus is on Titus Titus himself being a godly influence to... I'm going to switch that mic off. There we go. Good. Okay. Uh, So we're going to look particularly how uh, Paul encourages Titus to be that godly influence on the younger men uh, in the churches that he's leading. Daryl has already begun to be a godly influence on those around him. I'm not sure if Daryl's even probably aware of that, but the ripple effect of Daryl's influence, his godly influence on uh, his friends and family is already being seen and, and experienced. And that is just fantastic. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's really great. And I've no doubt that he will increasingly be a godly influence on other Christians, not just non-Christians, but other believers too. And, and I'm sure that's already happening in actual fact. So let's look this morning at uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, and particularly as we look at this theme of being a godly influence. I'm going to read verse 1 to 8, but we're looking particularly this morning at verses uh, 6 to 8, the sort of third part of this section. So Paul writes these words. He says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Just as Paul has instructed Titus to firstly teach the older men and and then secondly the older ladies who were in turn to teach the younger ladies in the church, he now moves the focus to Titus himself and the way in which that Titus can be a godly influence, particularly on the younger men in the churches that he's working with. Paul says this, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And the way that Paul writes this letter and the other clues we get in the New Testament suggests that Titus himself was at this point a younger man. We said that kind of the dividing line here was probably sort of late 40s, 50s between being an older man and a younger man according to the Greek words that he uses. So Titus is probably a younger man at this point. He's part of this group. So Paul wasn't just instructing Titus as an old guy to instruct the young ones to be uh, uh, self-controlled. Paul was effectively challenging Titus himself. And as Titus lived amongst them and was one of those younger guys to live out that example. But what does Paul mean when he talks about being self-controlled? What does this word mean? Well, the New Testament of the Bible was written in Greek. And the Greek word that this phrase, self-controlled, is translated from is the word sophonio. And it essentially means this, to be of sound mind, to be sober-minded, to be clear-minded, to have clear thinking, to have mental and emotional composure, not to be distracted, not to be impulsive, but to be focused. That, that's kind of what this, what this word means. That's what this Greek word means. Self-control, I guess, is the control of self, isn't it? Self-control is the control of self. And that's the word that Paul is using here, and it encompasses all of these aspects. And that's what he, he wants Titus to encourage the younger men in the church to be like. He's encouraging Titus to be like that himself. 
And then he wants Titus to encourage the younger men, by his own example and by his teaching, to be like that as well. To be of sound mind, to be sober-minded, to be clear-minded, to have clear thinking, to have mental and emotional composure, not to be distracted by stuff, to not to be impulsive, but to be focused and to be a really kind of focused person. Because the reality is that anyone who is going to follow Jesus day by day and live for him needs to be like this. And, and this is especially true of younger men, which is why Paul uh, highlights it. But actually, it's true for all of us. What we've seen going through these three sections uh, of chapter 2 is that although Paul does focus on different age groups and, and, and different sexes within the church, actually, all of these things are things that we need to take on board, aren't they? They're, they're all true for all of us in actual fact. But we all need to be that kind of focused and having and living out that kind of self-control. If you're anything like me, then there's probably 101 things that can fill your mind and distract you and tempt you or prevent you from being focused on Jesus and living for him. Am I the only one who's, who's like that? Probably not. I'm guessing that most of us, that's kind of our experience. Isn't it? There's loads of stuff going on all the time, and it distracts us. It, it takes our mind away, and, and we're not that focused person that we probably should be. Am I the only person who, when you're praying or when I'm praying, finds that my mind is suddenly filled with all kinds of stuff, my shopping list, my to-do list for that day, other email that I need to respond to, uh, things that I need to do, all those jobs around the house that I suddenly start thinking I haven't done, just kind of randomly popping into my head when I'm trying to pray. And, and, and then sometimes sinful thoughts that I haven't invited into my head, they just turn up in my head. And like, where did that come from? Is that just me? Or is that kind of common to lots of you? Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? This is what happens. And that's why Peter says these words in 1 Peter 4. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. The phrase clear-minded is this word, Greek word, uh, sophronia. Now, I know that it also then says be self-controlled, but that's actually on this occasion translated from a different Greek word, although it is a related word. But the phrase to focus on, because it's the same Greek word that Paul uses with Titus, is this word, this phrase here, clear-minded. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And Peter's point is that prayer is so important to us. Prayer is so much a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus day by day. But in order for us to have an active prayer life, we need to be clear-minded. We need to be self-controlled. If, if we're going to pray, then we need to get rid of the things that distract us. We need to say no to anything sinful that we're tempted to think about or do. And we need to focus. That will mean being disciplined. It will mean clearing time in our day to pray. It, it, it might mean going into a room where we're not going to be distracted. It might well and probably will mean leaving our phone in a different room. One of the things that I find really helpful to do is just keep a, uh, a pen and paper, or if you use your phone as a notebook or whatever, but as those often quite legitimate thoughts pop into my head when I'm praying, just write them down, and then it kind of kills that thought, and then I don't forget about it, I'm not stressing about it, and then I can get back and focus on what I'm praying for. And, and, and I find that really helpful. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 5 where he says, be self-controlled. It's the this, this same word again. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You know, as followers of Jesus, we have a real and a literal enemy who will do whatever he can to stop us following Jesus. And he's out to devour us, and so we need to be self-controlled, says Peter. We need to be clear-minded 
and alert to what he's doing or what's going on around us. Self-control or the control of self it is such an important attribute and we all need to have more of this. And those of us who are older, according to Paul here, are meant to encourage the younger men, particularly for older men, to encourage the younger men to live like this. Self-control or the control of self is about being focused on what God wants us to be focused on. And it's about being focused on that so that Satan doesn't take advantage of us. That's what Peter is getting at here. Be self-controlled, be clear-minded, be aware of what's going on, be focused so that Satan won't get in and devour you and, 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 and cause you problems. So it's good to ask ourselves, isn't it? What do I need to focus on? And what will that mean for me? What do I need to be more focused on? Living this whole point of self-control out, what does that look like in terms of focusing on stuff, really drilling down and focusing? Uh, and have you ever tried, uh, uh, you know, as a kid with a magnifying glass and concentrating the rays of the sun and, and you can kind of burn things and you can even write your name and a bit of wood and all that kind of stuff as you as you focus as you concentrate the power and that's the same kind of idea here that we focus we drill down on what is really important it's good to ask ourselves what positive things do i need to do what positive steps do i need to take to be more focused on being uh, the person i need to be and and doing the things that god wants me to do peter says there in 1 peter 4 that part of being self-controlled part of being clear-minded is so that we can pray we need to be clear-minded. We need to be self-controlled. Otherwise, we won't pray. It's about having what we might call a quiet time, focusing on prayer, a time each day where we get alone with God and do our best to get rid of the distractions that are around us. But, you know, having a quiet time doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't just suddenly happen. Oh, that, that just happened. It doesn't happen like that. It takes somebody to be self-controlled, to be disciplined and say, I'm going to plan my day. I'm going to make sure that this part, this part of my day, whatever it is, doesn't matter when it is, whatever works for you, but this is a non-negotiable thing. I must, I will create time in my day. I'm going to be clear-minded. I'm going to be self-controlled and make sure that me and God is a non-negotiable time in my day. We need to switch off our phones. We need to plan our day. We need to prioritize. That's what this word means. But there's all sorts of other things that we need to focus on if we're going to follow Jesus day by day. And, and, and that will be different for each one of us. Each one of us will have the thing, different things in our lives that we need to be focused on. And it's really important to regularly stop and ask ourselves, what do I need to focus on and what will that mean for me? What does that look like for you, being more focused so that you can kind of live out this whole thing of being self-controlled? Self-control is also about being self-aware. It's, it's about being aware of the things negatively that distract us. It's not just about being positive and focused. It's also about being self-aware of the things that can distract us. And most of those things are perfectly legitimate things until they distract us from what we're meant to be doing. And, and, and that might be a hobby. It might be TV. It might be books. It might be our phones. It might be sport. It might be a relationship. It might be our possessions. And things like social media, you know, our phones particularly are such a difficult thing, aren't they? They're constantly pinging and distracting us and, and, and taking our attention. Self-control is about being self-aware. Bible teacher and author John Piper has famously said these words about the Christian and social media. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from the lack of time. Let me repeat that. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day when we stand before Jesus that prayerlessness was not from the lack of time. The amount of time we spend on social media will prove that it wasn't a lack of time that stopped us from praying. 
it was self-controlled. And, and you could just as easily substitute all kinds of other stuff in there. I'm not having a go at Twitter and Facebook. Um, but you could easily substitute all kinds of stuff in there. So it's good, again, to ask ourselves, what is it that distracts me? might not be anything bad, but what is it that distracts me from following Jesus, from being focused? What are the things that distract me in my day? And what will I do about that? Rather than just, yeah, yeah, that's a kind of distraction, but hey, actually doing something about that and actually saying, yeah, that is something that I need to deal with. And that might mean, there's nothing wrong with social media, but it might mean for you getting rid of social media. It, it might mean canceling your TV sports channel. If, if that just absorbs and sucks in all your energy and time, then maybe that's something you need to think about. It might mean going to bed earlier so that you can wake up earlier and be awake when you get up and, and be able to focus on God. For different people, it'll be different things. Self-control or the control of self is about focusing on the right things and ruthlessly getting rid of the things that distract us and get in the way of us living for Jesus, even though they might be good things or neutral things in and of themselves. It's also important to ask ourselves, which sins do I particularly struggle with and what practical steps can I take to resist those temptations? Self-control or the control of self is about being self-aware of the particular sins that we struggle with and taking steps to reduce our exposure to those temptations. I mentioned last week internet pornography and, and the challenge that that is and how accountability software can be really helpful with something like that. But being accountable to another mature and another godly Christian can, ha can actually help with any sin, not just with sins, but just stuff that we might struggle with. It's really good to be in a relationship with other people who are speaking into our lives. And, and again, it, you know, is there a godly person that you respect that can help hold you account in your daily walk with Jesus? We've looked at that, haven't we, over these last three weeks, this whole, this whole concept of older people, whether in age or in spiritual maturity, getting alongside and discipling and mentoring those who are younger, either by age or in the faith. But also, it's not just about waiting for them to do it. Go and ask somebody and say, look, you know, I want to be discipled. I want someone to speak into my life. Would you do that for me? Would you speak into my life? Would you ask me those difficult questions? Having someone who will regularly hold you to account can be so helpful in that respect, and not just with sins, but with everything. But it will require us to be vulnerable and humble. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a kind of a willingness to be vulnerable, to, ask, to have someone ask us those what can be awkward, difficult questions sometimes. Self-control or the control of self with regards to sin is also about not choosing to put ourselves into situations or places where we know we are going to really struggle. And sometimes we can't avoid temptations. That we, we, we can't just go and live in a, in a cave somewhere. But we don't want to kind of consciously choose to go and put ourselves in a situation where we're really going to struggle with sin and, and, and temptations. It's great to have godly and mature Christians helping us in our struggle with sin. But ultimately, we've got to take responsibility for our own lives. Nobody else can live our life for us. And that's where self-control comes in. Ultimately, the only person who is going to answer to Jesus for my life is me, not anybody else. Paul then says to Titus, in everything, set them, ex set them an example by doing what is good. Set the younger man a godly example in everything you do is what Paul is saying. You know, this isn't just about the older man and younger man. This is actually for all of us because every single one of us, no matter how old you are this morning, every single one of us has massive influence on other people, at least one other person and probably many more than that. 
are under your influence. You might not think you have influence over other people, but you do. Other people are watching you. They're being influenced by your behavior, uh, sometimes in a positive way, sometimes maybe even in a, in a negative way. But people are being influenced by you. They're being influenced by the example of your self-control or by your lack of it. They're being influenced by what you say. They're being influenced by how you behave. So we really need to think about the kind of example and the kind of influence that we are. It's not a question of are we influencing other people. We are, even if we don't realize it or acknowledge it. The question is what kind of an influence am I? What kind of an influence are you? Paul says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And then Paul says to the Christians in Corinth in his first letter to them, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That might seem a kind of an arrogant, bold thing to say, or, you know, follow me. And it's not really what Paul's saying. Paul was able to say that because he knew that he was living his whole life trying to follow Jesus. He was following Jesus' example. And so because he was doing that, he was confident that he could say to others, yeah, you can follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Church leaders, elders, are meant to be those who church members can look at and they can see the outcome of how they live and say, yeah, I see that is a great way to live. That, per that guy, that person is really living for Jesus and I want to be like that. I want to imitate their faith, not so much to imitate them, but to imitate the kind of faith that they have and the way that they're living. That's what it means to be a godly example. And, and that's a real challenge for me as a church elder. It, it is my life something that others would want to imitate. Church leaders are kind of meant to be like a sort of player coach who are not only coaching the team from the sidelines, but are actually playing on the team and are actually playing the game alongside the rest of the team. They're coaching them, but they're also coaching them by their own example so that the other players can see what they're doing. It's not about just standing up the front and telling people what to do. It's getting alongside people and, 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 and living with people and, and, and doing life together and other people growing and, and learning from our example. But it's not just church leaders like Titus or uh, the Apostle Paul or, or church elders like Keith, Paul, and myself. I've, I've never put our names in the same sentence as Paul and Titus, but there we go. That's, that's a kind of first. But the reality is that all of us, doesn't matter what role we play in life, if we're following Jesus, all of us have massive influence over other people. We all have other people looking to us as their example. That might be our friends, might be our non-Christian friends. It might be newer Christians than us. If, if someone is a newer Christian than you in this church, they will be looking to you to be that example. Well, you've been a Christian for longer, therefore I'm going to look to you. That's what will be happening. It might be the children in the church. It might be the young people that we're teaching. It, it might be our own kids who are watching and, and learning from our example. So it's good to stop and ask ourselves, am I being that godly example? Am I a godly example to others? Is, is what I say, but also perhaps just as importantly, is how I behave helping other people follow Jesus? Am I a help or am I a hindrance to those that I am influencing? And we are influencing people all the time, even if we don't realize it. Am I a help or am I a hindrance to those I'm influencing? But it's also good to stop and ask ourselves, who am I going to influence or who am I going to allow to influence my life? Sadly, not every Christian will be a good influence in our lives. 
it would be wonderful if that was the case, but the sad reality is that not every Christian is always a radical follower of Jesus. And so not, not every Christian is somebody that we perhaps want to emulate or follow their example. So we need to be wise and we need to be discerning about those we allow to influence us. We need to seek out the wise and godly people in our church families and spend, choose to spend time with them. We should spend time with everybody, absolutely. But we want to really hone in on and say, that person there I see is, is a great example of what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm going to go and spend time with them. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. Wise people hang out with wise people. Paul then says to Titus, in your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Those of us who teach others, whether that's uh, you know, especially in a kind of formal, official way in a church setting, such as Sunday School or Friday Frenzy this Friday or FX or, or Space Tonight, or up here on a Sunday morning, we need to take really special notice of this verse. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And when it says that we should show seriousness in our teaching, it doesn't mean that we have to be super serious and dull and not have fun or not be fun. That is not what Paul is saying, okay? Even when we're teaching, we, we don't have to be super serious and dull. To be serious about something doesn't equate being dull and somber. You know, I personally believe that Jesus had the, be the best sense of humor of anybody that has ever lived. Jesus, I believe, was fantastic fun to be around. That's why everybody invited Jesus to their parties. He was at all those parties, wasn't he? And he got accused of being all sorts of things because he went to parties with people. And Jesus was there. Why? Because they loved him. They wanted him there. He was great to be around. So it's not about being serious and dull and boring, but it is about taking what we're teaching really seriously. It's about taking what we're teaching and living seriously. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're dull and boring. The New Living Translation puts the same verse like this. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. What we're teaching whether it's Friday Frenzy, Friday night, whether it's FX, whether it's uh, Sunday night in space, whether it's with the kids through in Sunday school, or whether it's up here on a Sunday or on a one-on-one, -on -one, what we are teaching is of eternal significance and eternal importance. And so we need to take it incredibly seriously ourselves. A and we need to make sure that our preparation for that teaching, that we take that seriously. You know, if, we, if, if we're leading a Sunday service, if we're preparing a talk for the children, or for Sunday school, or for space, or, uh, or on a Sunday morning. Let's not leave that till 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Now, I know that stuff happens, and, and the schedules and planning can go out of the window. I know that. But let's be people who show integrity and seriousness about our teaching and about the roles that we're performing. And that, that means that we treat it with the seriousness that it deserves and demands, that we're not just rocking up and, and, and knocking something out that's not really of great importance. What we're teaching, what we're doing, is of massive importance. So let's treat it with that importance. Let's treat it with the respect it deserves. If, if you're involved in leading and in teaching in whatever setting here at Regent, let's give it our best shot. Let, let's, let's put that first. Let's, as much as we're able with all the other legitimate demands of life, let's show that we're taking our teaching seriously, giving it the seriousness that it deserves. 
But teaching others is much wider than just those kind of official teaching slots in church, like Friday Friends or your FX or Sunday mornings or, or Sunday school or whatever it might be. You know, whenever somebody asks you to explain something about the Bible to them, uh, and, and that can be with a non-Christian as well in a kind of evangelistic setting, or maybe if somebody asks you for your opinion or uh, for some biblical direction, you're effectively teaching them. You're acting as that teacher to them. might be in a really casual setting. You might not even realize that's what you're doing, but you're still explaining the Bible to them, and you're explaining it and applying it to their lives. And that's one of the reasons why this verse is also encouraging us to make sure that we practice what we teach. It's so important that we practice what we teach. It's important to do that because we don't want to undermine what we're saying by what we're doing. It's no use if we're saying one thing and then our behavior kind of undermines that. We don't want to put people off what we're teaching by what we're doing. And particularly with non-Christians, the gospel itself is a stumbling block. So let's make sure we don't put additional stumbling blocks from people encountering the gospel by our own behavior and the way we live. We are all influencing other people by our behavior. And those of us who are teaching others will be being watched by those around us much more intently. Those we're teaching will want to see that we practice what we preach, that we practice what we teach. And they want to see that our day-to-day behavior is consistent with what we teach. So our behavior needs to support our teaching rather than undermining it, which is so easy to do, isn't it? We don't want to undermine our teaching by our behavior because we are all influencing other people. Every single one of us is influencing somebody else for good or for bad, even if we don't realize it. And sadly, there'll be some people who will actively oppose what we are teaching. And and sadly, they'll sometimes, those people are even found in a local church. Titus was having to deal, remember that the context here in chapter one was was Titus having to deal with a whole load of false teachers who were attacking the truth of the Bible, attacking church families, attacking the local church. And Titus was having to oppose them and stand firm about what was true. And whenever we teach the truth, there are always going to be people who will oppose us. And and sadly, sometimes that opposition can even come from within a local church. And that's why Paul says here that Titus needed to watch how he behaved and ensure that he practiced what he was teaching so that those who would oppose him, and and the reality is that opposition will just come. That's what happens. But those who would oppose him, when they kind of stood up to him, they'd be left embarrassed and kind of ashamed because actually when they were uh, challenged about it, they'd have nothing bad to say about Titus and his behavior and his character. They might not have liked what Titus or Paul was preaching and teaching. They might have been actively opposing them. But when it came to trying to pull them down, there was nothing in their behavior that they could uh, have a go at. They'd be left embarrassed and ashamed. And that's the kind of example that we want to be. That's the kind of way that we all need to to be. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these words, I feel really, really challenged by what they say. Because I'm very much aware of my own limitations and my own uh, failings and failures. How on earth, uh, you know, it's it's, it's tempting, isn't it, to think, well, I just can't do that. I can't live up to that standard. I I know how, you know, difficult I I find this or or I know I struggle with this. I know I'm not always great at this. How on earth can I be a godly example to other people? And Satan will love to get in there and kind of accuse you and remind you of all those ways in the past. Oh, remember that you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever it might be. And, and that's just Satan coming in. How can you teach others when you, when you, you, know, you don't practice what you preach? I, I'm just not very self-controlled. I'm, I'm just not very focused. I'm just not very self-disciplined. Well, you know, when I think like that, and I often do, I'm reminded again of God's grace. 
God treating me, God treating us all in a way that we don't deserve. I, I'm so thankful that God, although he wants us to aim really high in life and, and, and pursue godliness, I'm so thankful that God doesn't demand perfection. Isn't it great that God doesn't per- demand perfection from me or from you? We don't have to be Jesus. Jesus is a great example for us, but there was only ever one Lord Jesus. And we are never going to be that. And it's wonderful. And I, I'm so thankful that God uses flawed people like me. He used David the adulterer, Gideon the wimp, Rahab the prostitute, Peter the denier of Jesus, Paul the murderer. God used deeply flawed people nevertheless to be the people that he worked through and it's so important to stay focused on God's grace to us so that when we don't behave the way that we should be or when we're not the godly example that we know we should be or we'd like to be that we know that God hasn't given up on us and God doesn't give up on us he gently picks us up and and just like a father or a mother does with a with a young kid who's fallen off their bike God puts us back up on the bike and says away you go have another go isn't that brilliant Isn't that fantastic? God wants us to aim for greatness and for godliness, but he knows that we're fallen, flawed people, and he just loves to come along in his grace and pick us up. You know, there's another side to this. Someone said to me recently, there's the man I want to be, and then there's the man I actually am, and I just really struggle to be the man I want to be. Well, you know, the only person preventing me from being the man that I want to be and the godly influence that I should be is me. Nobody else. The only person preventing you from being the godly man or woman that you want to be and the godly influence that you should be is you, nobody else. Or as, as those of us who have trusted in, in Jesus, we've been born again and we've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to live within us and God lives within us. We're united with him forever. And as a result of that, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. We have all of the resources and power we need to live a godly life. And if you don't believe me, look at what Peter says. Peter says this, his divine power, that's God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God's divine power has given you and has given me, if you if you've trusted in Jesus, everything you need for a godly life. Living a godly life, being that godly example, isn't just for some kind of super spiritual elite group in the church. That is not the case at all. It's actually for all of us because we all have everything we need because we have the Holy Spirit. This isn't something that's beyond the reach of most of us. It's something that we can all do and be. We can all be godly people who are godly influences. God has given us everything that we need according to the Bible. But it's up to us what we do with the resources that he's given to us. I'm going to close by reading Titus 2, 11 to 14. Keith's going to be preaching on this uh, in a fortnight's time. So I'm not going to steal any more of his kind of uh, thunder, but I'm just going to read from Titus 2 um, and verses 11 to 14. And then when I've read this, the band are going to come up and Rachel and the band are going to lead us in a final song. But this is what Titus 2, 11 to 14 says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Thanks, guys.